Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you all for joining us. My name is Jamie Boskett. I'm the president and CEO of the Virginia Historical Society, and I'm thrilled to see you all here today at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture for another of our wonderful banner lectures. Uh, you are in store for a real treat today uh, as we have this lecture as a companion, really, to the wonderful exhibition that's on display upstairs right now. Uh, so more about that in just a moment. If you would please take a moment and silence your cell phones um, and I'll share a few announcements. Our next banner lecture will take place right here in the forum on Tuesday, June 26. That day, the prolific scholar of the American Revolution, John Furling, will be with us to deliver a lecture entitled Jefferson, Payne, and Monroe, the American Revolution's Revolutionaries, uh, which is uh, based on his new book, of course. On Saturday, uh, June 23rd at 3 p.m., uh, and this is a really special treat in a partnership between us and some neighbors from the north. Uh, I hope you'll join us for the New York Genealogical and Biographical Society. Uh, they'll be partnering with us for a joint program here to celebrate genealogy and discuss research methods, uh, and specifically to commemorate World War I. And uh, many of us have unknown connections to those who fought in the war. Uh, in case you hadn't noticed, we've actually been featuring, since we opened our centennial exhibits, the opportunity to come into our research library and to search the fairly comprehensive database of World War I draft records. Uh, and so I'm sure this will tie into that very nicely. Uh, but on June 23rd at 3 o'clock, we'll have Joshua Taylor here, who's the president and is a professional genealogist, uh, to talk about how we trace World War I relatives. So really worth, worth your visit. Hope you'll join us. All right, now on to today's program. Ellen Shaw Agnew earned a BA in Art History and Phi Beta Kappa Honors from Randolph-Macon Women's College in 1980 and a Master's in Art History from Binghamton University in 1983. Before graduate school, Ellen was employed at the Chrysler Museum of Art in Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, she returned to Randolph-Macon in 1984 as the first full-time curator and director and later part-time associate director of the college's Mayer Museum of Art overseeing its renowned collection of American art. Over the course of her 23 years at the Mayer Museum, Ellen organized more than 100 exhibitions, including a five-city national tour of selections from the museum's permanent collection that opened in 1990 at the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts and traveled to the Terra Museum of American Art in Chicago. Also, the Tampa Museum of Art, the High Museum of Art in Atlanta, and the Corcoran Gallery of Art in Washington, DC. She left the Mayer Museum in 2007 in 2015, she curated Georgia Morgan paintings from private collections and authored the exhibition catalog to accompany it. In 2018, she co-curated Inside Looking Out, the art of Queen Estoval from the Dora Gallery at the University of Lynchburg. She also, of course, co-authored the beautiful catalog, which I hope you'll look at afterwards, uh, which is uh, for sale um, today. Uh, but particularly, take your time to see the exhibition so you can get up close and personal with this art. We're very proud to have it here, to have so many wonderful connections with, with Queena's family, uh, and to showcase her life's talent and work. Please join me in welcoming Ellen Agnew.
Thank you. Um, I'm pleased to be here today to talk about Virginia artist Quina Stovall and her evolution as an artist. I thank the Virginia Museum of History and Culture for inviting me here today, for hosting the exhibition Inside Looking Out, The Art of Quina Stovall, and for the show's thoughtful and beautiful installation. And thank you, Jamie, for your kind introduction. As an artist, Quina Stovall has been described using terms such as primitive, naive, genre painter, folk artist, and simply artist. Labeling is commonplace in the art world, where art history is traditionally framed and taught within the context of sequential art movements. In American art of the 20th century, those movements or styles of art fell into broad categories, starting in the early decades of the 1900s with urban realism in the works of George Bellows and early modernism in paintings by Georgia O'Keeffe, with regionalism or American scene painting in the 1930s and 40s by Thomas Hart Benton, and with the explosion of contemporary art forms and isms that began with abstract expressionism in the 1950s by artists such as Jackson Pollock. Stovall painted her first oil in December 1949 at age 62, and her last complete work in 1967 at age 80. Of the 49 paintings she produced during that almost 20-year span, 29 of them were painted in the first two years, 14 in 1950 and 15 in 1951. Her discovery came 10 years after that of famed folk artist Anna Mary Robertson, Grandma Moses, whose 1955 painting, Catching the Turkey, is shown on the left. And at the cusp of dramatic changes in the art world, with non-objective art, such as Willem de Kooning's 1950 painting, Woman One, on the right, gaining notoriety and popularity in major art centers, such as New York. Sandwiched between Moses's bucolic New England scene which satisfied nostalgic yearnings post-depression and during World War II, and the world's changing social, political, and economic order following the war, Stovall's evolution as an artist proves a fascinating study. Stovall's place within this spectrum of 20th century art is best examined through the relationships she established and fostered within the art world. She, like other artists who worked outside the mainstream structure of formal academic training, art galleries, and museum institutions, relied on those connections for encouragement, advice, validation, and support. Yet it is a testament to Stovall's own independence, self-sufficiency, tenacity, dedication to her craft, and clarity of artistic vision that she produced such a strong and even body of work and came into her own as an artist. Insights into how Stovall was viewed as an artist and how Stovall saw herself as an artist are found in personal correspondence and print media during the years she painted. What is revealed through these primary sources is that Stovall both sought and struggled to straddle two very different worlds the life of a self-proclaimed countrywoman, and the life of a professional artist. By day, she ran a farm to financially support herself and her family, hosting gatherings of family and friends at her home several times a week. 
By night, she painted in the quiet of her studio bedroom to satisfy herself. What were the subjects of her 49 paintings? In many cases, they were the views out of her bedroom window in the country. The barns, pens, gardens, fields, and mountains. The tangible inspiration for the almost 50 paintings she produced. Those vistas formed the foundation, the stage upon which the seasonal activities, daily routines, and chores of family, friends, and neighbors were recorded on canvas, such as canning peaches in the summer under the cool cover of a porch amidst a garden's bounty of corn, tomatoes, and green beans, making apple cider in the fall with the hay harvested and baled, the air cool and crisp, cutting, loading, and hauling winter wood to heat the home and run the wood-burning stove, the trees still ablaze with color, blackberry picking in the verdant spring with buckets full and mouths stained red with juice, gathering laundry from the line and shepherding chickens to shelter as a thunderstorm moves through, a favorite breakfast of homegrown sweet potatoes, baked fresh and hot from the upper oven of the wood-burning Great Majestic stove. Bath night, when the oldest bathed first and the youngest last, hence the phrase, don't throw the baby out with the bath water. <laughs> Baptisms in a local river, the sacredness and power of its transformative event evidenced by the upraised arm of preacher and congregant. Family prayers at night with one nodding off to sleep on the bed and another standing by the door itching to go out for the evening. A Saturday evening shave after a day of cutting wood in preparation for attending Sunday morning church. And country auctions with bidders eagerly assembled to assess an item for sale while a man watches his possessions sold from his porch in the distance. Stovall's subject matter is appreciated and resonates on both personal and universal levels. Her paintings reflect the life she led as a farm woman in rural Virginia at the base of the Blue Ridge Mountains and illustrate an agrarian way of life that has virtually vanished. And while Stovall's paintings may at first glance appear simple, nostalgic, and even quaint, they are, in fact, sophisticated and complex constructs. Trees, buildings, paths, fence lines, animals, and people organize and structure her dynamic compositions with strong horizontals, verticals, and diagonals that lead the eye and the viewer into the action of the painting. Stovall stated that she would see a picture in her mind's eye before she picked up a brush to paint. She said, I have to paint somebody doing something, showing that they're working. I'm used to a busy life of doing things. That's what I love. This dichotomy of Stovall the countrywoman and Stovall the accomplished artist leads to the question, how did Stovall see herself as an artist and how did those in the art world see her? To answer this question, Stovall must be understood within the context of her life experience as well as within the times in which she lived and painted. Emma Serena Dillard 
shown far back left, was born in 1887 in the country outside of Lynchburg, Virginia, the seventh of 12 children of Ella Woodruff and James Dillard. In her youth, she garnered the name Quina when a young relative could not pronounce Serena. In 1896, Quina's father died, leaving Ella, shown back row, far right, to support and raise the family. The Dillard Dozen, as they were called, formed a close-knit and strong family nucleus, which would remain central throughout Quina's life. In 1905, Quina left high school during her senior year to work as a clerk and secretary in Lynchburg. At that time, her artistic talent and creativity were already evident, as seen in the undated watercolor of roses she painted above and the hook rug that she made later using the same theme of a bouquet of roses below. Perhaps the underpinning of Queen as creative impulses was established by her mother Ella's creative artistic creations, as seen in the still lives she painted of flowers in the watercolor on the left and on a picture on the right. In 1908, at the age of 21, Queen married Jonathan Breckenridge Brack Stovall, 12 years her senior and a traveling salesman. For 20 years from 1923 to 1944, the family lived in Lynchburg, but rented a farmhouse in nearby Amherst County in the spring and summer. During this time, finances were tight as the couple raised their eight children. Queen's independence and entrepreneurship developed as she helped support the family through farming, while Brack traveled for long stretches of time. In 1945, the Stovall settled permanently in Amherst County in Elon and continued to farm with Queen's large extended family close by. In the fall of 1949, at the age of 62 and with her children grown, Stovall took an art class at Randolph-Macon Women's College, taught by Pierre Dora. Born in Spain, Dora was academically trained at the School of Fine Arts in Barcelona. He lived, worked, and exhibited in Paris in the 1920s, where he met and married an American art student from Richmond named Louise Blair. They moved to the United States in 1939 and eventually split their time living in both Virginia and France. Dora was a dedicated, passionate, and prolific artist, working during his 66-year career in watercolor, gouache, wood, stone, metal, and oils, as seen in his landscape of Virginia on the right. One of the first assignments from Dora was for the class to paint something that reminded them of Christmas. In early December, students submitted their paintings. Stovall, who had only attended a handful of classes before the assignment, presented her painting entitled, Hog Killing. In Hog Killing, Dora recognized immediately Stovall's originality, as well as the inherent and natural makings of an artist. He encouraged Stovall to refrain from taking any further formal instruction and to paint on her own, saying, my fear is that if she keeps taking lessons for me, from me or from anybody else, she will maybe learn a few artifice of the trade, and she will cease to be. Her innocence and candor are a direct reflection of the deep love and understanding of the people and the subjects Mrs. Stovall paints. 
She so thoroughly identifies herself with her subject matter that her knowledge of it makes it easy for her to see it in form, in color. Hog killing was the distillation of Stovall's life experience as seen through her mind's eye. To Stovall, Christmas meant fresh meat, and so killing hogs was an annual occurrence in her life as a country woman. In this first painting, Stovall employed simplified figures, thin paint application, muted colors, and a flattened perspective, with the foreground extending almost to the top of the painting. Stovall followed Dora's advice to forego further instruction and paint on her own. However, Dora's encouragement and friendship continued, providing a spark that led to a period of intense artistic production. Stovall completed her second painting only one month later, in January of 1950. Titled Cutting Out the Meat, the work contained many of the same elements of hog killing, but already evident were the strides Stovall achieved in the bolder use of color, a greater sense of depth, and a more complex and cohesive composition with the use of strong diagonals and overlapping elements in the foreground, middle ground, and background. In October 1950, Stovall met artist, teacher, and lecturer Grant Raynard, her exact contemporary, when he was in Lynchburg on a fall lecture tour. Raynard, who was an admired illustrator, printmaker, and painter, had strong ties to the art world, having studied at the Chicago Art Institute and the Chicago Academy of Fine Arts, exhibited widely in New York in the 1930s and 40s, traveled extensively throughout the United States speaking about art at colleges and museums, and served as art committee chair and president of the Montclair Art Museum in New Jersey. Upon seeing her initial paintings, Reynard, like Dora, instantly recognized Stovall's artistic abilities, writing to her in December 1950, saying, I have never seen an artist in all my travels and in teaching and observing artists for all these years whose work was so thrilling and surprising in its character and originality. You are a full-blown painter. Just go ahead and paint and draw and paint and paint the things that you know and love, the life around you that you feel and see. I want to see you produce many paintings while this great unspoiled urge is upon you to get life down on canvas. I don't know of any person painting anywhere today who is putting down the record of a place and time such as you are there on the farm. Stovall replied in January 1951 saying, regardless of how hard I work and struggle over each picture to get the real feeling of what I'm striving for, I always finish with the realization of my own failure and inferiority as an artist and wonder why I keep at it. The braided rug I have just finished painting looks as if it were hanging on the wall rather than on the floor in front of the fireplace and I don't know how to make it right. At such a time as this, your wonderful letter came, and I can't begin to tell you how much it meant to me. When you were here in the fall, you made me feel that I was not completely wasting my time in attempts to paint, simply because I love doing it. And as for doing anything else but paint and paint, I'm completely sunk. No interest in such commonplace things as food and housework. 
I'm saving an old ham for your next visit to Virginia, which I hope will be soon. Make your plans to bring Mrs. Raynard with you and stay with us. From this initial exchange, a close and lasting friendship grew. In Raynard, Stovall sought validation, reassurance, and advice on how to navigate and succeed in the art world. Raynard's influence provided a stabilizing force for Stovall and gave her something to hold on to during her long periods of artistic isolation. For his part, Raynard treated Stovall like a peer, even suggesting years later in 1964 that they exchange works of art. Dear Quina, I came across a painting which I made of you at work in your bedroom studio on one of my trips down to Virginia, and I am sending it to you as I think you and your family should own it as a family item from one artist to another. It has seemed odd to me that over all the years we have never exchanged work and that I do not own a painting of yours. I have traded work with many well-known painters, John Marin, Edward Hopper, John Sloan, but I don't have one by Queen Estoval. Do you have a painting which you would send me on an exchange between artists? Let me know as the Montclair Museum is going to have an exhibition of the works which I own by distinguished artists, and I want you to be included. In response to Reynard's suggestion that the two artists exchange works, Stovall offered him one of her prized paintings, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. Though honored by Stovall's generosity, Reynard declined to accept the work, saying, it is one of your best ones, and it really belongs in a museum. Instead, they agreed on Stovall's much smaller and more intimate canvas, full litter, portraying Brack feeding a litter of pigs, a view that Reynard recollected often seeing from his bedroom window when visiting the Stovalls. Reynard's watercolor of Quina painting in her bedroom hung in Stovall's kitchen throughout her life, a daily reminder of a treasured friendship and artistic kinship. One of the most important roles Reynard played in Stovall's early artistic life was to provide guidance to her concerning the business side of art. In February 1951, the Ogle Bay Institute in Wheeling, West Virginia, expressed interest in acquiring Stovall's painting, Come Butter Come. Stovall immediately turned to Reynard for advice on whether to keep or sell a work as she was building her portfolio and how much to charge, saying, I have such faith in your judgment and advice, and I need them so. Reynard replied, Dear Mrs. Stovall, I can't see how I could say anything but for you to go ahead with the Ogle Bay Institute transaction. You do what you feel best. If $250 seems agreeable to you for the painting, it is, of course, a good price and fair enough for a painting by an artist who has sold little or no work but you, in my judgment, are headed for better things. The only thing I'm advising is that you hold your work high enough to keep it out of the class of amateur painting. I am quite sure that your biggest effect will be to show a good-sized group at once to a prospective dealer. The impact of, of, a, of a lot of work is the thing which will show that you are not a flash-in-the-pan painter. In February 1951, Stovall sold Come Butter Come to the Ogilvy Institute for $250, resulting in both her first sale to a museum collection and a boost of confidence as she continued to paint.
Reynard's greatest and most selfless act on behalf of Stovall came in the spring and summer of 1951, when he arranged to have Stovall's work seen by one of the oldest and most respected dealers of American art in the country, Crowshar Galleries. Founded in 1885 by Charles Crowshar and run, run with his brother John, Crowshar Galleries represented European artists in the early years. However, with the introduction of European modernism and American urban realism at the famous Armory Show of 1913 in New York, John began to add more modern European and American artists to the gallery's inventory. Several important works that Crowshar Gallery sold included James McNeil Whistler's Harmony in Gray and Peach Color, Paul Gauguin's Self-Portrait with Halo, Pablo Picasso's Woman in White, and Charles Demus' My Egypt. The Crowshars also established long-term relationships with American realist artists, many of whom they represented for decades, and in some cases throughout their careers, such as John Sloan, Maurice Prendergast, George Lukes, and Gifford Beale. With the death of Charles in 1917, John took over operations and was later joined by his daughter, Antoinette. Pictured on the left at age 15 in a portrait painted by George Lukes, and on the right at age 23 in a portrait by Gifford Beale. In 1946, at age 44, Antoinette inherited the business from her father, becoming a senior figure among galleries that regularly showed contemporary American art. It was into this rarefied world that Queen Estoval was introduced in the spring of 1951. In May 1951, Reynard wrote Stovall saying, Dear Queen Estoval, I made a special trip to town today to talk about you and your work to a dealer and ask advice. I believe the next step is for you to have a half dozen of your best paintings boxed up and sent to me so that I can take them into New York and show them to the proper parties. This is a grand feeling trying to present the work of someone else. All my life I've been fighting dealers and trying to get my own work in this place and that. And now I can do a much, a much better job, I hope, on your work than I have on boosting my own stock. That same month, Stovall replied, Dear Mr. Reynard, it is needless to say how pleased I was to get your letter. The pictures were expressed to you today. It was hard for me to decide which ones to send, so I sent eight. I hope you won't be disappointed. Our garden was late getting started, so I have been quite busy with the hoe instead of the paintbrush these past few weeks. Though I know how very busy you stay, yet we are hoping that you and Gwen will find time for a visit with us this summer. Reynard answered Stovall on May 29th, saying that the eight works had arrived safely and he was delighted with them. He encouraged her to keep painting, saying, Keep them going and take your time and enjoy yourself in the work. I expect the subjects are endless as they are so much a part of your life and the life of the place there. In June, Reynard wrote Stovall to share that he had taken her works to Crowshar, who liked the paintings very much, and the arrangement she proposed. 
to introduce Stovall's work quietly and gradually to assess how it was received. Public reception of Stovall's paintings would guide specific pricing recommendations for her work, as well as the gallery's commission rates. Reynard said that Krauschar was most interested to know when Stovall started to paint, and concluded his letter by reiterating his trust in and respect for Krauschar, saying, your work is in one of the most beautiful galleries on all of 57th Street in the heart of New York's art world. Stovall responded to Reynard with a letter that he was to share with Krauschar. I like being called Queen of Stovall, especially by you, a real artist. It seems to put me in the art circle and give me a bit of prestige. It is hard for me to really take in that all of this is happening to me, and I can never truly thank you for what you have done. Miss Krauschar seems to me the perfect one to handle my pictures. Her ideas for showing and selling the paintings as well as her, per her percentage are absolutely satisfactory. I think the desire to really do something creative, I don't know what, has been with me always. With home and eight children to look after, I could never find time for anything but the necessary material things of life. All of my work is life, as I see it and know it here in the country in Virginia, and I consider each painting an important part of the composite picture. We have a splendid garden coming on, and any time you can leave the hub of, of city life for a little country peace and quiet, we would love to have you come. I can only say again, thank you from the bottom of my heart. On July 23rd, Antoinette Krauschar wrote Queen of Stovall, reiterating the arrangements that had been discussed through Grant Reynard, adding, I am more than pleased to know that the arrangements we suggest to you are, uh, that uh, suit you so well. We are to keep the pictures here on sale and for exhibition, and we will do our best with them. I feel that there has been unfortunate emphasis in the kind of publicity publicity given to so-called primitive painters, and I feel that we can eventually do more with the pictures by giving them the same kind of showing that we do to our usual group of artists who have always made it their profession. I hardly need add that I like the pictures very much, indeed. Otherwise, I would not have undertaken to handle them, and I look forward to showing them with great interest. I deeply appreciate your invitation, and if it should be possible for me to take a trip to Lynchburg, uh, to Virginia, I will let you know. I deeply appreciate your invitation. In September 1951, Stovall replied to Krauschar's letter, apologizing that the chores of summertime farm life had kept her too busy to write, and expressed complete confidence in Krauschar's ability to handle the publicity and sale of her paintings. Again, Stovall urged Krauschar to visit her, and while Krauschar's fall trip to Virginia never materialized, Stovall's first inclusion in a New York exhibition did. In October, Krauschar wrote Stovall saying, we have hung the painting of June Pasture in a group exhibition and have had some very favorable comments. That same month, Reynard wrote Stovall saying, I must let you know that I was in the Krauschar galleries yesterday to see their fall showing of artists on their regular list, and on entering the main exhibition room, found to my delight that your baptism painting was hanging smack in the center of a wall and a top place in the show. 
A review of the New York exhibitions in the New York Herald Tribune highlighted the show under the bolded heading Krauschar Group and said, the new exhibition of paintings at the Krauschar Galleries that has just opened with about 30 works presents this season's first survey of the gallery group. As these are deployed with some breadth of taste as to impressionist and abstract themes, there is room for choice between the sparkling patterned realistic landscape of Gifford Beale on the one hand and the austerely decorative abstraction in Kenneth Evett's large trio on the other. Realism in Queen Estoval's charming naive baptism also figures with gaiety to give this group a varied, pleasant appeal. Over the course of the next five years, from 1951 to 1956, close to two dozen letters were exchanged between Krauschar and Stovall, and more than 20 works were shipped back and forth between Lynchburg and New York. Through Krauschar galleries, four paintings were sold, but interestingly, the identity of the buyers were never revealed to Stovall, probably due to Krauschar's client privacy policies. I stated in my exhibition catalog essay that new research showed that three Stovall works were purchased from Krauschar by Alfred Corning Clark II, a member of the Singer Sewing Machine Dynasty and son of Stephen Carlton Clark, one of America's greatest art collectors and philanthropists. Those paintings were The Baptism, sold in late 1952, and Saturday Night Bath and Blackberry Picking, both sold in November 1954. However, I recently learned that one or more of these three works were likely gifts of Stephen Carlton Clark himself, pictured on the left, to Jean Taylor, Jean Sinclair, now Taylor, while she was married to Alfred from 1953 to 1960, both pictured on the right. The revelation that Stephen Clark purchased Stovall's work is significant when one considers Clark's discerning eye and the leading artists whose masterpieces he collected and eventually donated to both major museums and academic institutions whose art holdings he respected. A small sampling of the paintings he purchased and donated includes George Surratt's Circus Sideshow, and Paul Cezanne's The Card Players to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, Edward Hopper's New York Movie to the Museum of Modern Art, Vincent Van Gogh's The Night Cafe to Yale University Art Gallery, and more locally to Randolph-Macon Women's College in Lynchburg, Virginia, Rafina Tamayo's Troubadour. The purchaser of the fourth and final Stovall painting that Krauschar sold, June Pasture, was discovered only by chance when I was documenting Stovall's paintings for the exhibition. All that had been known was that June Pasture was sold from Krauschar Galleries in December 1952. Decades later, it was sold at auction in Virginia, ending up back in the Stovall family in Richmond, where I examined and photographed it in March 2017. At some point, the painting had been reframed. Glued to the new black backing paper was a section of the painting's original brown backing paper that included the Krauschar Gallery's label. 
Below the label was a green handwritten notation saying, property of Helen Farr Sloan. Helen Farr Sloan was the second wife of the aforementioned American painter John Sloan, one of the leading urban realist artists of the early 20th century. Helen had been a student of John's at the prestigious Art Students League of New York and married him in 1945 after the death of his first wife. Helen, portrayed at her easel by John in 1947 on the left, was a respected artist in her own right, specializing in genre scenes of New York City, such as the painting on the right. After John's death in 1951, Helen helped organize his well-received posthumous retrospective at the Whitney Museum of American Art, became an important philanthropist, and in 1952, purchased Stovall's painting from Krauschar. The fact that two such important and discriminating art world figures as Stephen Carlton Clark and Helen Farr Sloan collected Stovall's work, validated Stovall's growing stature as an accomplished professional artist. Krauschar's role in Stovall gaining a foothold in the New York art world and art market cannot be overstated. The exposure Stovall's paintings had hanging in the company of works by renowned artists while being sold through an established and well-respected gallery in one of the most important art centers in the world allowed Krauschar to set prices for Stovall's work that would never have been imagined in Virginia. Stovall wrote Krauschar, I am so proud and honored in having you handle my pictures, and I hope that they will provide a profitable venture for us both. As interest in and sales of her work increased at home, Stovall began asserting herself in asking that specific paintings be returned to her, as well as about pricing and how payment should be addressed in relation to her arrangement with Krauschar. In addition, as Stovall gained self-confidence, she expressed hope that Krauschar would mount a solo exhibition of her work in New York. When that did not occur, Stovall wrote Reynard in June 1953 saying, I felt disappointed she wasn't planning a one-man showing for me, but of course she knows best. I just like to have something to keep me pepped up. Reynard replied to Stovall sympathetically, suggesting that to be in vogue, many of the New York art galleries were starting to show more works by the young moderns. Later that same year, on December 25th, Stovall's husband Brack died. The following day, Reynard sent a long condolence letter that included, I can see him as I remember seeing him from my bedroom down there, out back feeding the pigs and the turkeys and the cats around, and of course he will live for us all in your many wonderful paintings where he is busy about the farm in so many of them. With Brack's death, the correspondence between Stovall and Krauschar became less frequent. Stovall wrote in October 1954, the past year has brought many changes for me. Brack, my husband, passed away last Christmas day. My youngest son was married in August and two of my daughters in October so I've had neither the heart nor the time to do much painting. By May 1955, Krauschar was involved with moving her gallery to a new uptown location. In February 1956, Stovall sent a letter to Krauschar stating that there would be an exhibition of her paintings at the Lynchburg Art Center that spring, 
and asked that all her works be returned from New York. The return of Stovall's paintings signaled a shift in direction for the artist, whether intended or not. Two additional exchanges occurred between Stovall and Crowshar. May 7, 1956. Dear Miss Crowshar, enclosed are the newspaper clippings about my showing, and I'm happy to tell you that everything worked beautifully. There has never been a showing in Lynchburg that has created as much interest and enthusiasm. I sold nine pictures, and I'm sure being represented in your gallery had much to do with it. Was so sorry you couldn't get down for the occasion, but please know that if you ever feel in the need of a little rec relaxation in the country, I will be, de be delighted to have you. Hope to do some painting as soon as gardening season lets up. With best wishes, sincerely, Queen of Stovall. May 21, 1956. Dear Mrs. Stovall, Thank you so much for sending the press clippings, which were very interesting. I am delighted to know the show was such a success and regret that I could not come down to see it. With best regards, sincerely, Antoinette Crowshar. Stovall's May 7th letter was significant for several reasons. First, it rightly acknowledged the critical importance of Crowshar's role in Stovall being accepted and regarded as a serious artist. Second, Stovall's language exuded a growing confidence in her own abilities as both a painter and as someone who had learned to manage and make decisions about the business side of her professional career. Finally, Stovall made no mention of sending any more paintings to New York, and Crowshar did not comment in her May 21st letter about looking forward to seeing any new work. These two letters proved to be the final exchange between Stovall and Crowshar and the end to their association. The lack of additional correspondence leaves unanswered questions about how or why the focus shifted for each. And while Stovall and Crowshar never met and thus never experienced each other's worlds, the high regard and deep respect they held for one another is evident. In May 1980, just a month before Stovall died, and eight years after this portrait of Antoinette Crowshar was painted, Crowshar was interviewed for an article on Stovall and said, I was not deeply interested in naive art. It was unusual for me to step into it, but those early paintings that I saw were beautiful. The way she used color and caught the mood, the time of day, the seasons, and the land was extraordinary. I liked her things much better than I did those of Grandma Moses, whose work was charming, but a little untouched by emotion. Queen of Stovall's, Stovall's work was more painterly. I imagine one would say that I'm very romantic, and I responded to it. Stovall's much-anticipated one-person exhibition at the Lynchburg Art Center in April 1956 drew large crowds, including her eight children, and, glow, and glowing press, quote, capturing the very atmosphere of the red clay country, picturing its life with intensity, sincerity, and affection. The artist has chosen to sign her work, Queen of Stovall. This name already has attained coveted recognition in art centers of importance. Genre paintings of an engaging quality portray Virginia life with a brush dipped in knowledge of the people and country living. 
An editorial several days later expounded upon Stovall's paintings as not only personal expressions, but as a phase of Virginia life which was fast passing away. The cider press, the sorghum machine, chickens, pigs, dogs, and people occupied with their business to the exclusion of a sophisticated and weary world. All these things live and move in these paintings. One attendee at the 1956 Lynchburg Arts Center opening was the director of the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts, or VMFA, Leslie Cheek Jr., pictured on the far right, who flew round trip from Richmond to Lynchburg on April 15th specifically for the exhibition opening. An article in the Lynchburg newspaper reported Cheek's response to Stovall's work saying, Mr. Cheek spoke of her feeling for life, the human element, and the humor displayed in her work. He expressed his belief that her memories and experiences had been given time to distill, enabling her to paint with such depth of understanding. On seeing the pictures, he recalled his own memories of boyhood days in summers spent on a Tennessee farm. On the back of his flight itinerary card, Cheek scribbled the following, most interesting primitive, hope she makes our show next year, address, Queen of Stovall, Mrs. J.B., Elon Road, Madison Heights, Virginia, nearby Lynchburg. The show to which Cheek referred was the VMFA's Virginia Artists 1957, a biennial juried exhibition for Virginia artists, and his words would prove to be prophetic. The 16th biennial exhibition of Virginia artists was held at the VMFA in March and April of 1957. More than 400 Virginia painters, sculptors, and craftsmen from across the Commonwealth submitted over 1,000 works of art to be reviewed for selection by a three-member jury. Each artist hoped to be one of approximately 100 accepted into the exhibition, then one of 20 selected to receive a certificate of distinction, and finally one of a handful chosen to have their work purchased for the museum. Jurors for the 1957 biennial were sculptor and Columbia University professor Orzanzo Meldarelli on the left, top left, painter and Harvard University lecturer Ben Sean, bottom left, and Andrew C. Ritchie, director of painting and sculpture at the Museum of Modern Art in New York on the right. Stovall's submission, Swing Low Sweet Chariot, was accepted into the exhibition. Although the work was not chosen for a certificate of distinction or for purchase by, by the VMFA, it was selected by Ritchie, who was chairman of the jury of selection, to be included among 25 paintings from the exhibition to travel throughout Virginia. Stovall carried over to the VMFA biennial the pricing for her paintings that was established in New York by Crowshaw Galleries. It is worth noting that the $500 price listed for Swing Low Sweet Chariot exceeded the pricing of all of the over 100 artworks listed in the 1957 Biennial Exhibition Catalog. Local newspaper coverage of the Biennial was heavy throughout the almost two-month exhibition, with Stovall mentioned several times. 
One newspaper commented that her paintings had attracted nationwide attention and that she had been acclaimed by critics in New York. However, another article that included a photograph of Stovall standing next to Swing Low Sweet Chariot began with, mixing hog killing with painting was the beginning of the career of Virginia's answer to Grandma Moses. Stovall was quoted as saying, I can do everything except split wood, and I must admit that the last time I milked a cow, she kicked and I went off the stool. <laughs> this article appears to be the first published account of Stovall being directly compared to Grandma Moses. The 17th Biennial Exhibition of Virginia Artists at the VMFA debuted in March and ran into April of 1959. Of the 1,085 entries submitted by 386 artists, 154 works were selected for the exhibition. Jurors were Italian-born sculptor Harry Betoya on the left, Richmond-born painter Bernard Perlin on the top right, and Dr. Sherman E. Lee, director of the Cleveland Museum of Art, bottom right. Stovall submitted to the 1959 biennial her 1957 painting, Baptizing Peddler River, a second version of her 1951 painting, The Baptizing, that had been sold through Crowshaw Galleries in 1952. Not only was the painting accepted into the exhibition and awarded one of the 20 coveted certificates of distinction, it was also one of four works selected by the jury for purchase by the VMFA. Newspapers again covered the biennial exhibition with articles and reviews focusing particular attention on Stovall. One article read, Mrs. Stovall started her career as an artist a few years ago. She has literally skyrocketed to fame with her direct genre styles of depicting the scenes she knows and loves of her native Virginia. However, Two other reviews mentioned that the jury of selection seemed to have reached a golden mean with a balanced show of avant-garde art at one end of the scale and of some very traditional works at the other end, referencing the folklore of and the primitive charm of Quina Stovall's Baptizing Peddler River. In early April, an article appeared in the Richmond newspapers under the headline second Grandma Moses Richer. It contained a description of Stovall and a contingent of 32 family members and friends arriving at the VMFA by bus from Lynchburg saying, the plump, shiny-eyed farm woman hopped off the chartered bus last night. Mrs. Queena Dillard Stovall, 71, sometimes called Virginia's Grandma Moses, had come to town to pick up her art award. I have a very busy life, Mrs. Stovall said enthusiastically, with all the relatives and feeding cows, chickens, and pigs, and of course painting. I always paint about the things I know, scenes that I see out in the country, like funerals, hog killings, and baptisms. The article concluded with details of the award ceremony, saying, later in the evening, Mrs. Stovall stood on the museum theater stage as an official handed her a check for her painting and said, People may call her the Grandma Moses of Virginia, but we of the museum think the other paint painter should be called the Grandma Stovall of New York. 
<clears throat> also attending the VMFA award ceremony was chairman of the jury of selection, Dr. Sherman E. Lee, who gave a slide lecture about the biennial exhibition paying special tribute to Stovall. One article commented on Lee's presentation, reporting that the paintings were projected on an enormous screen, and the first to be shown was a slide of Mrs. Stovall's, which Lee compared with The Peaceable Kingdom by Edward Hicks, one of America's best-known primitive painters, and that Lee comparing Peaceable Kingdom to baptism was not to show their similarities as primitive paintings, but to prove contrastingly that baptism was a very knowingly painted and sophisticated picture. Lee further lauded Mrs. Stovall's work, saying that it possessed rare qualities and was more outstanding than the work of Grandma Moses. The final VMFA biennial to which Stovall submitted work was held in February and March of 1963. Submissions that year proved the largest in the museum's history, with 591 artists submitting 1,549 entries for consideration and the exhibition expanding to include 175 works of art. Jurors were abstract metal sculptor Abe Satoru, top left, realist portraitist and genre painter John Koch on the right, and Thomas M. Messer, director of the Solomon R. Guggenheim Museum in New York on the bottom. Stovall entered end of the line the largest and most ambitious work she had ever undertaken. And once again, she was chosen as one of the 20 artists awarded a certificate of distinction, which she received from the executive vice president of the VMFA, Robert Marsh. Messer, chairman of the jury of selection, quote, observed that as a whole, the entry showed Virginia's art reflecting the national trend towards abstract expression, end quote. Art critics who reviewed the exhibition commented on the, quote, preponderance of large pretentious abstractions, end quote, saying, if modern art seems confusing to many people, there is good reason for it. It is confusing. <laughs> Never before have so many people painted and sculpted in so many different ways at the same time. However, critics also positively commented on Stovall's painting, saying, among the more memorable works is the acutely nostalgic and minutely detailed narrative of a country auction of Queen Adillard Stovall's End of the Line, which is delightful in its combination of descriptive realism and charming primitivism. Across the arc of seven years from Stovall's 1956 exhibition at the Lynchburg Art Center to her 1963 inclusion in the VF VMFA Biennial, the lens through which Stovall's art was seen and the language of art itself had changed. As contemporary art introduced coarser and less recognizable imagery, Stovall's direct and gentle narratives may have appeared increasingly nostalgic, primitive, and even folksy to some. The same 1963 VMFA Biennial Exhibition Review that described end of the line in terms of its descriptive realism and charming primitivism, included commentary about art as a reflection of turmoil, both internal and external. The review, 
illustrated by juxtaposing a, a reproduction on the top of end of the line with an abstract, ab abstract painting below entitled Figure in a Landscape stated, symbols of anxiety, violence, and frustration seem to be particularly popular with today's artists. Figure in a Landscape is an image of a cornered individual almost swallowed up by a world full of lumpy, streaked, scratched, and splattered paint. One of the 20 objects recommended by the jury for certificates of distinction, it is one of the most powerful pictures in the exhibition. By 1965, when Stovall had a one-person exhibition of 31 paintings at Randolph-Macon Women's College, she was referred to as a primitive painter. Under the newspaper heading, 31 primitives shown at RM, the article stated, Mrs. Stovall's paintings are compared, are often compared or contrasted with those of Grandma Moses. Both are known as primitive painters, but Mrs. Stovall's material deals chiefly with Virginia country scenes and old time country life, a way of life which is rapidly disappearing in our urban civilization. In 1972, Stovall met Dr. Lewis C. Jones and Agnes Halsey Jones. Lewis Jones was executive director emeritus at the New York State Historical Association in Cooperstown, and together with his wife Agnes, traveled for a year throughout North America to research, photograph, and record folk art through a National Endowment for the Humanities grant. In 1972, Stovall was 85 years old, had finished her last complete painting five years earlier, and had suffered several health setbacks. In addition, she was almost 10 years removed from the artistic award she had earned and the public accolades she had garnered through the VMFA biennials. And so her discovery or rediscovery by the Joneses became a renaissance of sort for Stovall and one that brought renewed enthusiasm for and new perspectives on her art. Both Joneses were scholars and teachers of American folklore, with Lewis Jones having received his PhD in English, English, English literature and American folklore at Columbia University. Both had also worked on numerous books and exhibitions related to folklore, folk art, and folk culture. From their initial meeting with Stovall, Lewis Jones conceptualized and then spent over a year organizing a three-venue exhibition and a catalog of 41 of Stovall's paintings with funding from the National Endowment for the Arts. As a result, from the fall of 1974 to the fall of 1975, the exhibition Queen of Stovall, Artist of the Blue Ridge, Piedmont, was displayed at the Dora Gallery at Lynchburg College, the Abby Aldrich Rockefeller Folk Art Collection, now Museum, in Colonial Williamsburg, and the New York State Historical Association Fenmore House, now Fenmore Art Museum of Art in Cooperstown. The Joneses' belief in the importance of Stovall's work was evidenced by the fact that she was the only individual artist they ever researched and presented in the form of a solo exhibition throughout their 40-year career. And in a testament to Stovall's appreciation of their efforts and to her tenacity of spirit, she attended the exhibition at each location 
even participating in panel discussions at the Fenmore House in Cooperstown at the age of 88. It is important to note that while the focus of the exhibition and catalog was Stovall's paintings, the Joneses' backgrounds were not as art historians or art critics, so their appreciation and promotion of Stovall's art to a wider audience was nuanced. Jones himself said as much in a, in a slide lecture he presented at Lynchburg College in the fall of 1974 in conjunction with the exhibition. We remind you that we are not art critics and shall make no attempt to verbalize our aesthetic reactions. We are social historians and students of folk life and wish to look at her work with you in those terms. Jones opened his talk by saying, Queen of Stovall was the most important single experience of our year of searching for naive folk arts and artists in America, and continued saying, she recorded a place, a time, a way of life, which lasted half a century, but which is now gone. Both Joneses valued Stovall not only as the matriarch of a large, lively, and celebrated family, but as an accurate observer and painstaking pictorial historian of farm life in the Virginia Piedmont. In the exhibition catalog introduction, the Joneses admiringly described Stovall's art as well as the artist saying, a painting becomes a brilliant essay on folk ways and customs seen from the viewpoint of the participant. They went on to note that Stovall's description of herself I am a country woman, was a key to these very human documents, beautiful and warm, and that she always painted what was around her, what she could see, not what she remembered out of her past. She was one of a very active body of contemporary naives in this country and abroad, all of whom worked outside the artistic movements, movements of their times and more or less isolated from other artists. With the exhibition and catalog, Stovall's direct association with the folk art tradition was established, cemented, and henceforth persisted throughout the rest of her life. Articles would describe Stovall as a contemporary folk artist, American folk artist, and simply folk artist. It is a label and a role that Stovall seemed to grow comfortable with as she aged and neared the end of her life. In September 1979, at age 90, Stovall was interviewed and filmed for a PBS special entitled Three American Folk Painters, which aired in 1983. In the segment on Stovall, subtitled Queen of Stovall, Life's Narrow Space, the artist said, I've had a wonderful life, no money but enough to live on. Now I've painted most everything, and I think I've had my share of sorrows, but through it all, it's been a peace and a happiness that I think few people have had. Stovall's relationship with Lewis and Agnes Jones, while beginning as a professional one, evolved into a deep and lasting friendship, just as it had with Pierre Dora, Grant Reynard, and even to some degree, Antoinette Crouchar. In each case, it was Stovall, and her life as represented in her paintings that drew people to her and held them in her universe. From her initial sense of wonder and awe 
at being thought of as a true artist, to her confidently exhibiting her creations in urban art galleries and museums, even including a self-portrait in the center of End of the Line. Stovall ended her career enjoying the attention due an artist, folk or otherwise, who had lived a full life and expressed herself fully. A description by the Joneses of the beginning of their friendship with Stovall in 1972 is perhaps an apt way to bring full circle the evolution of Stovall as an artist, since, since throughout Stovall's life, everything of importance always began and ended at home. The first time we saw Queen of Stovall, she stepped off the front porch of her farmhouse in Elon, Virginia to greet us. She seemed tiny, but straight and firm. She laughed her greeting. We'd come to see her paintings, to talk to her about them. With a characteristic mixture of diffidence, humor, and marrow deep confidence, she talked. She brought out some of her canvases. She told us stories about them. She laughed at herself. Two of her daughters were there. There was homemade wine and cake. We walked outside to the barns and outbuildings with the long lines of the Blue Ridge rising behind them. When we drove off in the direction of Lynchburg, we were leaving an old friend. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming. So we have time for a couple of questions. If anybody has any questions and you raise your hand, we can um, bring a mic to you. Hi, yes. Um, I have a question over in the corner um, by the door. <laughs> I know your lights Which are really one? dark oh, um, or bright. Um, we have a question from one of our Facebook watchers um, from our Facebook live stream. And they are wondering, um, in the midst of all of these great descriptions we've heard of how other people describe Quina and her work, how did Quina herself describe her own work? Well... I think um, beyond what the, I quoted in letters from her, um, I, di I didn't find much else in terms of um, you know, documents that may have um, and, and give, give light to that. So I think in this I tried to let the correspondence during the time that she painted um, be the source and my not try to read into anything and come to conclusions about it. Um, so I, I, go, I guess I don't have any further information than, than I hope what sort of came through um, in the talk. But her family might. There are lots of them. <laughs> Where does Mr. Stovall fit in the picture? Um, do you mean of her creation, of her paintings? Yeah, of her, his her. dealing with her. Mm-hmm. How does, um, how does um, Mr. Stovall fit into her paintings, you're asking? Um, well, he certainly was a great presence, and he shows up in about nine of her paintings. Um, and they obviously had a wonderful partnership in their life. One sort of side story that I actually had in the talk and then took out because of time was um, when she was painting and this initial um, inquiry came from the Ogilvy Institute to buy her work. Um, she had she told him that they that they were offering 
250 for the painting. And he said, hell's bells, that hardly covers paint and canvas. <laughs> because he thought 250 meant $2.50. <laughs> which was logical, considering his monthly Social Security check was $13. So when he understood that the actual price was $250, I think it was basically, you go right ahead and paint. <laughs> So I do think he was supportive of her in her in her painting. So Ellen will be available in the lobby to sign copies of the beautiful catalog um, that she helped to write. And um, let's give Ellen one more round of applause.